For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, my friends. You are here because you are interested in cannabis as a medicine, and you know this is the place to go to get all the best, most current information out there. And today, I am bringing you a very, very important episode. It's an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Block, who is an expert in the endocannabinoid system, and he is dropping some serious knowledge for all of you today about that system, specifically how it relates to this current COVID-19 virus that is circulating around the community. It is full of useful tips to keep your ECS healthy, to keep you generally healthy, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, some alternative forms of administration for your medicine. It is a really, really informative episode, and I'm excited to be able to bring it to you today. So without any further ado, here it is, Dr. Jeffrey Block. Hello, beautiful people. I am Matthew Myro. This is The Edge of Cannabis Medicine, and today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Block. Dr. Block is an American board-certified anesthesiologist who is additionally fellowship-trained in pain management and addiction medicine. He is the founder of Nurturing Nature Group Consultants and serves the Florida Department Agriculture Extension Office's programming as a certified master gardener. In 2014, Dr. Block was chosen as the Florida Medical Association designated expert on botanical medicines, and he was appointed to structure the framework and author the introductory chapter for physician education as mandated by Florida's Compassionate Medical Cannabis Act. In 2015, he was selected by Florida's Surgeon General to serve as the only physician appointed to the Florida Department of Health's Negotiated Rulemaking Committee, determining the rules for Florida's first legislation concerning cannabis when used as a botanical medicine. Thank you very much, Dr. Block. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Absolutely. Well, this is a very timely episode. We're going to be diving into the COVID-19 virus and how it relates to cannabis. And let's just jump right into this memo that you sent, specifically on how smokers and people who vape and the greater risk that they're at for COVID-19. Well, first of all, it's an extraordinarily challenging time for healthcare in general and public health. So uh, the reason I wanted to share that memo is I absolutely have a tremendous amount of respect for certain universities that specialize in public health. And one of them is at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm on the other side of the country and we have a strong representation for our public health and our universities here as well. But California sets certain trends. And one of the trends that I'm most impressed with that they've been behind for decades involves smoking in general. Now, I'm not talking cannabis, I'm talking about tobacco. So when you look at public health trends, especially over the last 15 or so years, that becomes a public health victory. And California well represents 
a definite decrease in tobacco smoking, which globally, and this is the key point here, globally, still is by far the leading cause of preventable death in the world. So when you look at changes in public health regarding tobacco and smoking, the University of California, San Francisco has been ahead of that for years. And yet during the same 15 years or so, we've now experienced challenges with public health with respect to accidental drug overdose deaths as being another preventable cause of death. Now, while a lot of those are involving opioids, my point is that public health issues drive our forces, economy, our perception of healthcare, and admittedly, our own personal security and health, because we are a public society, we're a homogenous society around the world, people travel like never before, and communicable diseases then can spread that way. So what alerted me to put out the memo that I did the other day is I watched last Friday that that university came out with their statement on their California Smokers Helpline that now has actually put out a COVID alert concerning people who smoke. And they didn't limit their comments to people who simply smoke tobacco, but they extended it to cannabis. Now, it included not only smoking, but vaping, because people vape nicotine a lot nowadays, and e-cigarettes are part of culture, in particular for kids. So recognizing that these are all the ways that people consume nicotine and cannabinoids, one having a particular medical positive value, cannabinoids certainly can, with COVID-19 coming out, I followed the news over the weekend, and lo and behold, Shortly after that University of California publication came out, the National Institutes of Health, through the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, published a release also concerned with the effects of COVID-19 on people with drug dependencies. Now, I didn't want to get into the discussion with you today on drug dependencies in general or, or that whole discussion. I wanted to bring up the way most people consume cannabis and cannabinoids which is through the lungs. And that's why today's conversation is different. It's not a stance on is it good or is it okay or at different times. It's at this particular time in history when we now know that COVID-19 is community-based, meaning it's everywhere. It's in our country and it's actually very communicable. And so isolating oneself is one thing, but we know that even with those efforts being made, that the numbers of people showing up not with simply a little sniffle or a sore throat or a cough, but with that disease, COVID-19, progressing down into the lungs as pneumonia. Pneumonia makes it so that what are called the alveoli, the parts of your lung that are required to get oxygen in and actually breathe out carbon dioxide, in other words, normal respiration, are severely compromised in people, so they need respiration. Ventilators, actually, is the proper word. Now, my background is as an anesthesiologist, and ironically, we deliver medicines, particular general anesthetics, through the lungs because it works that way. But it's, it's few and far between. People don't come in and have anesthetics every day, but the way people consume tobacco and cannabis frequently is on a daily, regular basis. And it winds out that when you look at not just early, but confirming data through Europe, the original data coming out now from China, where unfortunately lots and lots of people smoke, particularly men, that they fared far worse than people who did not smoke. 
Uh, over 50% of men in China smoke and about 2 or 3% of women, but they both can come down with COVID-19 and both have. The problem is lethal consequences. There is no worse patient outcome was skewed very much towards those men that were smokers. And, and that's the lesson learned there. And considering the mortality, not the morbidity, which is how sick it makes you, but actually how many people die from this, looking as though it could be two to three times more than the flu, which can kill enough people in of itself. It seems like now is a better time to have the discussion of alternate ways of consuming or having cannabinoids and even terpenoids other than through the lungs. And, and that's the reason I published the, the memo that I did citing both California as well as the National Institutes of Health, which regarded as important enough to get the word out urgently throughout all of their communications. Right, and part of what you shared was not just how the smoking damages the lungs, but also how it affects the immune system in general. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, it, it, it's not that so, so much now because cannabinoids are working differently than tobacco in this case. And so I don't want to mix up the two discussions. The discussion is more or less pulmonary health. And, and so if you're going to want to talk about the immune system, which of course is important when we have what's called a protein invader, a bacteria or a virus, when it hits, that's what your immune system is there to attack. It sees it, it recognizes it, it fights it, and it causes a certain immune response in a healthy individual. People who, for instance, have compromised immune systems, even people with advanced cancers who receive treatments including you know, chemotherapy, without an intact, healthy immune system, their outcome is far less favorable. But what the endocannabinoid system does is something that is a parallel system, in a sense, to the immune system. And it does not necessarily respond to a protein invader. What it does respond to, though, is an injury or disease. And that's qualitatively different. And in this case, we have an injury through the coronavirus to the lung itself. That sets into a cascade of responses involving endocannabinoids in an attempt to mitigate the consequences of that disease. And so it's a little different than when we think classically about an immune response, but a healthy endocannabinoid system is just as critical for survival as is a healthy immune system. And how is it that we can increase the health of the endocannabinoid system? Um, general measures, uh, you know, the endocannabinoid system that we have, while it was identified through the plant's chemicals, it in fact has nothing to do directly with the plant. Endocannabinoid systems existed in animals far longer than the plant's been on the earth. As a matter of fact, to the tune of nearly half a billion years longer. It's how we're truly hardwired. And we know a lot about one of two kinds of endocannabinoid receptors. And this is an important thing, hopefully for the listeners, to get a little deeper into what the endocannabinoid system truly does. We know a lot about certain receptors that we call CB1 receptors. And generally, those are the ones we associate with the brain and the nervous system. They're the things that are largely responsible for the effects on the brain, including effects on memory, euphoria, and things like that. But CB2 receptors are those receptors that respond when you get that disease, that respond, as I said a moment ago, to a disease or an injury. And CB2 receptors then are the ones that truly are there to protect us from that disease. 
it requires to have a healthy endocannabinoid system in total, but much, much less is truly known about CB2 receptors in the way they respond to diseases than we know about CB1 receptors with all the research that's been done on what many people consider side effects, but are actually primary effects on the brain of what cannabis does. So in fact, CB2 receptors, because of what they do, Matthew, are those things that we have in all of us that allows a disease to become chronic. That's a very powerful bit of knowledge because once you understand the mechanism for how the body works to help naturally cure conditions, and I didn't necessarily want to emphasize curing here because right now it's yet to ever be, be confirmed that cannabis cures anything. It treats an awful lot of things, but I'm talking now about the potential to heal from a disease or an injury. And that potential is modulated through those changes that happen by endocannabinoids on the rest of the body. So for instance, if, if you have a disease which otherwise might affect blood pressure in certain parts of the body, there are other parts of the body that compensate. If in, in fact oxygen from not being delivered to its full potential through the lungs, oxygen delivery to certain critical parts of the body is ensured through the function of healthy endocannabinoids, through those fine-tuning minor adjustments to try to ensure that enough oxygen goes to critical end organs, such as the brain, the heart itself, the kidney. And yet, when you have people right now with coronavirus who are succumbing to the effects on their lungs to where it's challenging for them to get enough oxygen in and to be able to breathe out what essentially is the waste of our metabolism, carbon dioxide, when that gets compromised and other end organs get the virus directly or the consequences of not having enough uh, oxygen, one of the other organs that suffers also in immediacy are the kidneys. So we know that when people are restricted and have to depend on a ventilator for their acute care, that the longer they stay on a ventilator and if they get other end organs, such as the kidneys, that become affected, that their chance of recovering and ever being able to come off of that ventilator and live is severely compromised. So, so this becomes a conversation then on about how the body's naturally geared to work through endocannabinoids to keep us in the game, to keep us there, not so much fighting in ways we're not aware of, but it's constantly going on, You're affecting all other receptor systems in the body and as a matter of fact, there's another statement that you could make about the importance of this is that every receptor system in the body, and there are many, many, many of them that we know of today, are all subordinate to the endocannabinoid receptor system. And if that gives you a sort of sense of priorities on where your health truly lies, it does within your own body's health and endocannabinoids. It's really incredible. I didn't know that. Amazing. And so I don't know if I heard the answer in there, but are there any kind of tips that you could give us for increasing the health of our endocannabinoid system? Well, right now, I'd say that if you have an alternative to inhaling either the vapor from, from vaping products or smoking, that your lungs might just thank you someday for it because if you got COVID-19, as I said, and you have your lungs compromised by that, that's not a good setting. What happens with smoke itself, 
and it could be firefighters, you know, forestry fire smoke, cigarette smoke. Smoke in general affects lungs by affecting tiny little hairs we have in our airways. They're called cilia, and they're there actually constantly exerting a sweeping motion to take the normal debris and the germs that get down past our trachea and into our lungs, and the sweeping motion of those little hairs helps to keep our lungs out. There are, there are filters in a sense. Smoking paralyzes those hairs, not permanently, but for sometimes several hours. And as a matter of fact, that's the reason why a tobacco smoker, a cigarette smoker, they go to sleep and when they wake up in the morning with their so-called smoker's cough, it's because the hours that they were asleep are enough time to allow those little hairs to wake up and start to sweep the junk that stays down there in the lungs close to where they feel it tickling their airway and they cough it out. That's why a serious smoker, in order to stop their morning smoker's cough, has a cigarette because then those little hairs stop sweeping and they're paralyzed again. But that keeps that debris and with coronavirus, keeping viruses and other contaminants down in the lungs can only make you sicker. And in fact, sometimes it's not simply the coronavirus that causes this, but all the lack of normal lung function allows other bad germs to grow down there. So you get super infections with other bacteria and things that sometimes are the ultimate compromise that causes the death along with, but originally from the coronavirus insult. So if there was a time to do something, and this has nothing to do with what you heard about last year, with contaminants that were generally considered and found to be black market that were contaminating vape cartridges that when inhaled were affecting people's lungs sometimes in irreversible ways and there was a rash of pulmonary deaths from that. This is not a conversation about that as much as now considering what alternative ways might there be that are advancing in their technologies to still have cannabinoids if they are regarded as therapeutic in someone's system. Well, you have several ways of getting things in other than through the lungs. The lungs, though, are unique because the lungs deliver blood directly to the brain. And that's different than when you get a shot in a blood vessel in the vein or something that goes through your heart, distribute your whole body, including the brain. This is the direct, most direct way to the brain. So when you have cannabinoids delivered in other forms, they usually don't produce that immediate high or the feeling of sensation of it. But yet, systemically, in the whole body, including the brain, they can be delivered through things that are taken by the mouth. I'm not taking, talking about only ingested, I'm talking about things that could dissolve in the mouth, a lozenge, things like that, compared to an edible, which is actually eaten and then digested and then taken up through the gut's blood flow. So, things, things like tinctures or maybe even a trochee. Exactly, exactly. Those products have a unique method of delivery that allows a metered dose to be taken in gradually in the sense that it's not after only maybe a few minutes, but certainly after 10, 20, at most 30 minutes, people will perceive those effects. Now, that's the oral, what's called mucosa, that has a lot of blood vessels in it. The counter of that, which is of great value for people who may need much higher doses or even people with intractable vomiting who can't put something in their mouth uh, are suppositories. And, and frankly, things taken in through absorption that way can be taken in relatively quickly because there's a lot of blood supply there as well. So that's through oral or in this case, rectal absorption, but other ways are topical. 
Topical things, creams, salves, things like that, are, are another way that with evolving technologies, including things called nanotechnology in the future, will allow chemicals to get in in not only greater quantities, but much more efficiently. And I'm emphasizing the efficiency here because no matter how you take in cannabis, cannabinoids are unique from most other botanical medicines, certainly, in that they're not soluble in water. They don't dissolve in water. They're actually fats or lipids. And yet your skin and your mucous membranes, they're, they're aqueous or water. So the same way that oil and vinegar separate out, because one is water-soluble, the vinegar, and, and the cannabinoids or the oil is not, it's harder for a oil product to get through the skin and mucous membranes, but there are a lot of advances and working on that now, and many topicals are starting to see new technologies, which have greatly accelerated the rate at which these can get internalized. Excellent. And so it's... Is that why we have to do things like we have to cook the cannabis down in order to create the oils and the butters because it has to have some kind of fat to cling to? Is that the idea? Well, I'm in Florida, so we don't cook anything here. Um, we system for how it's produced and hopefully accurately, you know, dosed, identified, metered, labeled, just the way you would with any other real medicine. Um, it's, it's important. So these aren't home cooked on the stove kind of things. I know it happens. I know people do it. Um, so without being naive to it, I, I'm, I'm not saying it to promote or condemn anybody. At this point, my key message is look into other methods other than the lungs. The lungs are too important. And again, I, perhaps it's speaking as an anesthesiologist who is comfortable and has his whole career handled airway urgency emergencies or, or just as part of our normal conduct of an anesthetic. When you can't breathe, Matthew, nothing else matters. And so having people hold their breath waiting to get a ventilator is a crucial time. And unfortunately, the realities of what's hitting New York now and what I can see as far as reports threatening other infrastructure overload in hospitals around the country are that when you have two people coming in seeking medical help, but both with the same advanced consequences of coronavirus, which means a pneumonia where people can't breathe, the urgency at that moment and healthcare workers now are being confronted with some horrible moral concerns, decisions, and ways that they have to approach what is called triage. Triage is a term that describes who gets what care first. And it originally was, was developed way back long ago in, in terms of a military priority. Which soldier of two injured should be the first to get treated? And it generally was, if there are gonna be potentially lethal injuries, whichever soldier can get back to the battlefield first gets treated. And the other, I'm sorry. And, and it's a horrible cost of war. And of course, you've heard of coronavirus now being compared to being a war or you know a different enemy, silent, invisible. The same kind of triage decisions that on a normal day would keep someone with a broken thumb waiting while someone having a heart attack gets seen in an emergency room, nowadays is not gonna be an issue because there are too many people at the same time coming in seeking definitive care, maybe not even for something as what you would think is as urgent and as serious and real as a heart attack, but not being able to breathe even trumps that heart process 
unless it's at that very moment that someone's heart is not beating. But the consequences of why most people's hearts stop beating not infrequently are associated first with not getting enough oxygen in. So um, while there are certain conditions of the heart from electrical disturbances that could present like that, suddenly many of the people who were coming into hospitals literally without a pulse and not breathing, if they have coronavirus that led to that outcome, it started with the inability of those lungs to get oxygen in the blood and from there on, everything is a downward cascade. So if you're gonna look now at what's happening in European countries in particular, I can tell you that three weeks ago, this is not new and why I've been waiting to share this when the timing was really needed and urgent here, but I have some other medical colleagues who have family who were practicing medicine in Italy as well as in England. And they have different systems of healthcare delivery, national health services in England. It's essentially a socialized system of administering healthcare. There are certain limited resources, but they've been dealing with that ever since World War II. And there was a great equalizing event that caused that system of how to render healthcare. It was the German V2 rockets landing on London and nobody being able to get healthcare. So people died, there was not enough services to go around. So in Italy today, even though that's not the way their system necessarily is set up, they have an advanced medical system. There's some very bright researchers who I personally know in Italy, and they're coming back and saying that they've had to adopt certain policies when people come into their emergency rooms, both sick with COVID. But even three weeks ago, there was an age cutoff proposed of 65 years old. I'll be 64 tomorrow, so this sits home. And, and it, not only if you were 65 years old, you could not get a ventilator, but if you were 65 or a smoker, I didn't say and a smoker, I said or a smoker, someone who was a younger than 65 and not a smoker would preferentially get the treatment just because of not having enough available resources to help two people with different background profiles. So, you know, we condemn profiling people for many different reasons. And I'm not saying that the people who are today in many of the inner city hospitals who are stuck on ventilators represent our society right now at large, but they represent the problem with healthcare right now in that it's being overwhelmed with people coming in all at the same time. So make no doubt about it, flattening that curve is a technique in a way to mitigate it for the time being, even though it may draw out the eventual course of it, it's in an effort not to overwhelm the infrastructure. That's what's coming here, and that's what's been evidenced in other European countries, such as Italy, in the last several weeks. Um, I'm scared to, of that, and that has nothing to do even with the healthcare providers' exposures themselves being an issue, because we can get sick too. And so it's not simply a matter of how many ventilators, but how many people do you have to operate it safely and get the best outcomes possible, which right now are showing that even compared to the flu and most other conditions which would warrant someone in normal times being in an intensive care unit on a ventilator, they generally would be people expected to be on that ventilator between one and four days. Doesn't happen that way apparently with coronavirus thus far, you have people who may need those services for upwards of two weeks. And that takes time, space, availability, the numbers of available machines. 
And even at that point, that individual may not be someone who could survive. We can keep people going and, and, and vital in terms of just having the absolute conditions that could keep a brain from dying, a heart from dying, or a kidney for that collateral damage. But thus far, we haven't come up with what's needed to fight coronavirus effectively and efficiently. And, and until that comes about, the best advice I could give anybody listening to this is don't get sick, at least not right now. And if, if smoking anything right now predisposes you to a worse outcome, should or maybe when you're exposed to and get something like coronavirus, then the best decision for right now and the best way you could conceivably not get sick are change some basic habits of the way you consume cannabis if that's something that you do on a regular basis. That's the best advice that we have, absolutely. And fortunately, most states right now that do have medical cannabis laws on their books, they're staying open, they are considered essential, and for the listeners out there who are patients, they should be able to go into their dispensaries and find alternative ways to administer their medicine besides smoking, because I think we're hearing you loud and clear, Doc. We do not want to be smoking right now. It's the worst thing that we can do for ourselves if we're trying to stay healthy. It's a bad time to get sick. Most smokers who do it on a daily basis, who recognize their own bodies, will know they go through certain times that they may have a cough or, or wake up with that cough that I told you is maybe a little more typical with an everyday tobacco smoker. So you know who you are out there. I'm, I'm just suggesting that now may be a good time, and I'm not even saying to quit forever, but for the time being, you will do yourself a great favor and you will be less of a stress on an already compromised infrastructure of healthcare if you consider using those alternate resources and methods of delivery for the time being. Okay, now I'm going to flip it just a little bit, and let's talk about if you know of any possible um, alleviations of symptoms or different things that cannabis may be helpful for in terms of dealing with either having the virus itself or being afraid of the virus? Is there anything that you can suggest to our listeners? Well, obviously, there's a whole lot of talk about CBD. And, and right now, for many reasons, CBD is being developed with the mindset of, well, could it be a nutraceutical rather than a pharmaceutical? I'm actually looking at it as potentially a wonderful pharmaceutical, and it's not necessarily for what it's currently FDA approved for, which is limited for uh, severe intractable epilepsy, but used off-label, in this case, uh, CBD can be a very powerful anxiolytic. It can relieve anxiety and the stress associated with it. This is an extraordinarily stressful time. When you compare the side effects of CBD when taken for stress and anxiety, it seems to have a much more favorable side effect profile than many or most of the other medicines that are currently out there. Benzodiazepines, certain, uh, certainly tricyclic antidepressants, things that have other side effects generally are not seen in CBD. The trick is that there's very little evidence-based data to say how much does it take to do the job. So whether or not somebody takes a suboptimal dose, by the way, one particular study may have indicated where's a critical dose that you have to take in order to relieve anxiety. 
that's where people's expectations and what's called the placebo effect. It's not a placebo effect compromised by euphoria the way that THC can produce that. This is simply expectations that we know that about 30% of people who take a medicine, even if it's a sugar pill for something unrelated, will perceive that they have the benefits of what that medicine's there to do. So it's not so bad for stress and relieving anxiety to have a placebo effect, even if it might be a suboptimal dose for what we find out in the future to be a critical level to statistically show that people can have anxiety relief to take, take only this many, maybe 100 milligrams of CBD. It tends to be somewhat cost prohibitive now as it's getting out into the market. And then be very careful because those products that are seen throughout the United States right now unless they are manufactured and sold directly in a state that has an approved medical program, much of the material you see in your standard stores that says it's CBD, when tested, is found out to be not something that has not a certain amount, but sometimes none of it at all. So until our federal government can get control over this market, most everything out there, even according to our own Drug Enforcement Administration, Right now, it's still technically illegal. It's not being enforced, but the products out there have not been tried, true, and tested unless they come from the direct processing in a state that has approved programs where their products go through that extra level of scrutiny, in which case, products legally could only be sold in that particular state. So depending on where you live, what you have access to, whether or not you're enrolled as a qualifying patient for a qualifying condition or not, the point is that almost 90% across the country of patients who seek cannabinoids are for the single qualifying condition of pain, chronic pain, not acute pain, chronic pain. And very few physicians and patients really understand what constitutes pain. Most physicians, as a matter of fact, regard it as largely being physical pain. But what you and I are speaking about now is really more an intolerable symptom rather than pain per se, which can be really psychological. And if you advance it even further, and if you know people that are wired and appreciate it this way, I know people who find certain symptoms spiritually intolerable and are greatly upsetting to them. So what someone calls pain may really be better assessed by looking at it as an intolerable symptom of a disease or illness. And in that sense, the conversation is a much more broad one covering chronic pain as a condition, because it seems that with 90% of people across the country having cannabis approved in those states where it's legal for that single qualifying condition, if it's only anatomical, then I think maybe, maybe Americans are just pain wimps or something. I don't believe that. I think that we're grouping this all together with things that people find intolerable and find relief justifiably from certain medicines that may be safer than other medicines truly prescribed for pain, which can include opioids, which obviously have their considerable downsides, both gastrointestinal as well as thought. And then when you couple that with the potential to overdose with, again, another lethal outcome, uh, cannabinoids don't seem quite so unfavorable but just for the record, as we enter 2020, there really are only four things right now that have the benefit of evidence-based data. And that's an important distinction 
from a wealth of anecdotal reports. Uh, anecdotal reports are of great value because they absolutely indicate where we should be doing those evidence-based data and the hypotheses that bring about a good study. However, I say it this way, that the plural of anecdote is not data, and to understand that difference for what you should be able to depend on is critically important. The same discussion right now is going on about hydroxychloroquine. Evidence-based data versus anecdotal reports or initial data, but of such limited quantities of subjects to make it not something that at this point is trusted by people who understand the importance of taking the study to its full end before making a general discussion statement. Just to interject real quick. Now, that's the drug that's being proposed anecdotally as a potential cure or maybe abatement of the COVID-19 virus. So just want to throw that in there. It's a little more, I wouldn't call it only anecdotal reports. There are about half a dozen, and that's all. Uh, Initial studies on relatively small populations, sometimes in combination with other things, one particularly with ZPAC, uh, another one that, that showed hydroxychloroquine perhaps not doing as well was given to patients, though, who had already received uh, antiviral treatments. So they're not perfect studies by any means. They're ones that were doing things proactively to try to get some information out there. The other thing about the medicine is it's available generally globally and pretty cheap. So for what early findings were being conducted since several of these studies originated in China, uh, it's not to discard them. It's just to say there's not enough of those data points yet to make any conclusions. So if we're going to share information in an anecdotal sense with reports that come out that the press is picking up things because of what you can hear on regular TV, just turn on the set, you'll hear it, um, is sort of getting ahead of itself. But in a sense, the same way that we were talking about what evidence-based data there may be for cannabis as a medicine compared to a wealth of anecdotal reports that at this moment there are not a wealth of anecdotal reports on hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, So I want to get back to tips. What kind of things can we be doing right now to really increase the health of our endocannabinoid system? We don't need to be taking in cannabinoids in order to do that. Am I right in saying that? That's true. That's true. So what can we be doing to make sure that this very important system is tip-top in these times? Well... I'll tell you a great place to to discuss those things you can do. The most frequently cited researcher in the world is Vincenzo DiMarzo. He's an Italian researcher. And way back in 1998, just a handful of years after endocannabinoids were discovered, he wrote something that said generally what they do alone or with other, other component parts. But what the endocannabinoids are supposed to do, your body's own chemicals that, remember, THC and the cannabis plant are mimicking some parts of. So what the body's designed to do and what you could do to have a healthy endocannabinoid system yourself are things that are approaching how you do things that help you sleep, eat, relax, actually forget or selectively remember, And then things that you could do that actually help to protect yourself from the consequence of getting a disease. That last part is the part that we talked about that was largely things I related to CB2 receptors. But the first four, 
are generally things that we think of in context with cannabis, but that DeMarzo years ago said, the real things that endocannabinoids do are there to help you eat and sleep. And even if we just touched on those first two for what you can do now to stay healthier, eating and sleeping is essential. The reason they're in your endocannabinoids from the time of conception, not birth, conception, is because growth and nourishment, whether from the mother to the fetus or once the baby's there, growth, eating, and sleeping is how you grow. But we generally grow for maybe the first 20 years of life and then, like it or not, we enter this slow, steady maintenance of how we live for years and years, thanks a lot to a lot of the advances in modern medicine, but it's a gradual, slow, steady decline because we've stopped growing. So in essence, at that point, you start losing more cells than making them. And that's just the difference between growth or decline. So after the initial parts of eating and sleeping, which should be obvious, to growing up and that you still need to do a lot of quality eating and sleeping in order to maintain a healthy endocannabinoid system. We talked about the importance of being able to relax. Right now, people are home, maybe not having to go into work, maybe you have a labor job and you're not really exerting yourself physically and so you might think of it, oh, it's a good time to relax, but then you have to figure also the selective stresses that come along with being confined to the home, with not being able to you know, hug your friends, your family, the things we get used to being social creatures. Those are stressful things, but yet if we get overstressed and can't relax, then we're not really taking full advantage of that one key thing that I said are one of the things that were identified for what the healthy endocannabinoid system allows you to do. It allows you to relax. So taking the time out to, to even just chill, if we're gonna put it into the words that many non-medical patients use cannabis and what they use it for, just to chill, that's a therapeutic effect. That's a therapeutic outcome that's being sought. So the importance of relaxing, in addition to the value of eating and sleeping healthy, is key to your general cannabinoid health and survival. The next thing we talked about after eating, sleeping, and relaxing, I actually said forgetting or selective memory. Because imagine if you couldn't get the most horrible statistic of this coronavirus thing out of your head and it was in your mind every minute of every waking day, try going to sleep at night and getting a good night's sleep where every time you're, you're thinking anything, that first thought comes into your life is one that's that alarming. See, we have to be able to, and endocannabinoids allow us to actually be able to selectively forget traumatic things, painful things. If you think that women, for instance, can remember the acute pain associated with childbirth, they don't, naturally they don't. We're not geared to remember that, or we'd probably be all only children, right? There'd be no need in our language for the word uh, brother or sister. But we're, we're hardwired to forget a particularly painful event including psychologically or even spiritually painful things. And forgetting is actually helpful. And a healthy brain does not remember those most stressful times. But there's a counterside to that. And this gets more into who we are as human beings because you and I have experienced different things in our lives that we've regarded as being intolerable, or I said painful before, 
but intolerable. And those are the things that you or I would tend to avoid. Maybe some things I experience are more intolerable to me than you, so I would keep avoiding them more so than you or you me. But there's a counter side of this because we're talking now about things that we're generally talking about as being painful and stressful. What about the other side of things that are pleasurable? Things that we find that have our body feel good, have our mind feel good, those things that really, that if you couldn't control seeking them, not avoiding them like pain, which is essentially what I described before with avoidance behaviors, one of the problems with PTSD. And in that sense, why people with PTSD may find that some of the varietals of cannabis that in essence then help them to forget are found to be therapeutic. In this sense, we're talking about pleasurable things. So imagine for a moment that one couldn't forget certain pleasures of things. That's probably at the source of addictions and behaviors that are not necessarily healthy when you constantly seek out things because of the pleasure. And the fact is you've had different experience probably with the things you find most pleasurable in life that you seek out or myself, different. We could be in a room of 100 people, not now because of coronavirus, but we could be in a room with 100 people and everybody's had different life experiences on what their own cannabinoid system has them remember or forget of things that are painful or pleasurable. And the things that differentiate one human being from another as life accrues, those are the very things that determine one's behavioral personality, what you choose to go for or repel. And we know really very, very little about the biochemistry of the personality that we all have that's so uniquely human. And to me, it's fascinating to, to think that the biochemistry explaining personality could be hidden within us because you know, there's a lot of chemicals that closely resemble the body's own cannabinoids. Anandamide and 2-AG are the ones most frequently quoted, but when you look at their chemical structure, our brains have a few other hundred chemicals floating around, and I've, I've talked with Professor Raphael Mishulam, who's regarded as the father of this whole field, and he says, you know, I don't think God put them there just for the fun of it. They're there for a reason. And to me, it's intriguing to think that the endocannabinoid system may be the basis for our own personalities, among other things. So we then we've covered what a healthy person could really do between eating, sleeping, relaxing, and then selectively forgetting, good, good forgetting. The protecting part is the part now that I was focusing on when we started this talk, because right now that's the mode we need to be in. And, and to expect that cannabis is gonna give you a healthy enough endocannabinoid system to be able to protect you from getting coronavirus, I think is a, is a stretch at this moment in time. But your question was much more focused and actually much more valuable because the discovery that Mishulam's lab made in 1964 when he was the first to figure out the chemical structure of THC and its biosynthesis, that's all a plant, very significant pathway that now we've learned much more about and exploit certain plants for their products. The discovery that his own lab made 30 years later in the mid 1990s, which was finding the body's own chemicals that THC is mimicking 
was far more important and valuable to healthcare. And that's what I've just spent this last few minutes trying to explain to you. The plant is to be absolutely credited for revealing that system. In a sense, the opium poppy could be credited for revealing the endorphin system. And even many cultures that use different peppers in their diet or to treat pain, capsaicin is used as a treatment for pain now, comes from the chili pepper. It identified a family of chemicals called endovanilloids. It involves something called TRPV1 receptors that CBD also is known to interact with. The reason I'm bringing this up is these are all plants that have identified through their plants chemicals our own body's endogenous, our own body's chemical systems, endorphins, endocannabinoids, endovanilloids, the three of which all integrate to help us with our perception of pain. And that's been known not just recently. There were medicines pharmaceutical companies made 80, 90, 100 years ago, which took small amounts of all three of those plant families, putting them together as the elixir, and they were used for the treatment of pain. Now, they were also abused, especially the ones that had the opioids in them, and they did have morphine in them, because if you just drank a lot of something that has only a small amount, the cumulative amount was enough to have some people die from respiratory compromise like they do from overdosing on concentrates of fentanyl nowadays that you hear about. But it's the same basic concept, Matthew. The plants have been very valuable in, in identifying things that we now know far more about. And if we're talking about pain, then you could go back over 100 years ago to the turn of the last century when aspirin first came out, early as 1900s. New natural medicine safe from the bark of the willow tree. And, and, and so there's a botanical medicine that was known to help pain long before the discovery of what were called prostaglandins were understood, which is one of the ways that works. But if you told somebody who was producing, and Bayer produced aspirin way back in the early 1900s, if you told them then, well, you know what, you're having a heart attack, chew an aspirin, they would have never thought, my God, it works for this too? That is the kind of polypharmacy future I potentially think could be ahead for CBD, in particular for CBD. Not for the whole cannabis plant, but again, for the receptor systems with which it works, because CBD is unique. It doesn't only work through the endocannabinoid system, it works through many, many other ways as well. And so some of the mystery surrounding it for how much it can do, for why, why it seems to be effective for so many different things, I believe will be found to go far beyond endocannabinoids. Fascinating. It's fascinating. Just the way that our bodies have evolved with plants is just, it's amazing to me. And looking back at just the mid-90s when when Mishulam did discover the endocannabinoid system, it makes me wonder what other systems are like inside of ourselves that we don't understand yet and we haven't had the opportunity to discover about ourselves. There may be many more. I don't know. Well, you know, the second half of the 20th century was probably the golden age for finding about human receptors, what they do, where they function, the associated biochemistry, neurotransmitters, all of that was the era in which I was being schooled. And, and frankly, so many of them having been derived from plants, chemicals that indigenous people appreciated without knowing the details maybe of the subtleties molecularly. 
they sort of knew what's good for what, including the way that we perceive terpenes and smells. You know, um, the, the first time I saw a dispensary in Colorado, it was a, an eye-opening experience, or I should say a nose-opening experience, because I watched people then, and you can imagine with dispensaries still being open today if there's whole flour, I certainly hope people not tested who know if they have coronavirus or not, are not going to the mason jars opening up, putting their nose in and seeing if it agrees with them. But that primal olfactor, your nose smell of something, that tells you or I if something should be eaten or not, is instinctual. We're hardwired that way. Animals smell things before they eat it. You and I do. So how smells in plants interface with our psyche is really important, and it, it's, it's at such an instinctual level to where if something just does not smell right, somebody's not going for it. Um, and, and, and that's just the way we are. I think that lends a great conversation to the potential value of terpenes for certain things, because certain smells elicit certain responses in many people. Um, one that I like to talk about, because everybody knows the smell of lemon, lemony type smells. You know, limonene is, is one of the more popular um, terpenes that's found in cannabis, and it's meant to be uplifting, clean, energetic. It's the same reason that when you go on a, a flight, if they hand you a warm towel that smells like lemon, it could be the dirtiest towel on earth, but it smells clean, so you, you tend to want to put it there. It's, way, it's the reason you go down the detergent aisle in the grocery store and everything smells lemony fresh. Um, that's just one example of, of, of a smell and a terpene, but we're wired that way. Other smells, um, oils, diesels, oh, look, you have skunk, skunk number one. I mean, it's a reason it's called skunk. It's, certain smells elicit that, and some people find that in some ways appealing, and others don't. Um, another good example, lavender. Lavender is used in soaps, and when you expose it in the shower and warm, it's very relaxing. So these are all different ways that the smells that are around us um, in essence, play with our brain because most of them are plant-derived smells. And plants have been around a long time. Their chemistries are highly sophisticated. Their, their genetic makeup of plants is highly sophisticated because so much of it goes to developing its own chemistry. And plants use that chemistry for their own defense. Plants use it for either it, discouraging an herbivore, an animal, from eating it. Most plant chemicals that are alkaloids that became medicines a century ago taste bitter. That's why you got the whole phrase of take a spoonful of sugar, it'll help the medicine go down. Medicines taste bitter, but yet some of the very same chemicals that can help defend a plant can help defend an animal. We're not biochemically that so far separated to where those chemicals don't work for us. They do. And they're repeating themes throughout nature and throughout medicine historically where indigenous people have a good appreciation for their environment, their plants, what works and what doesn't for what particular illnesses. A lot of that wisdom is being lost. There's deforestation issues that are not really part of why we're talking today, but it extends to the greater picture of how do plant chemicals interface with us? How is our chemistry perhaps um, being subservient to the plant's chemistry at certain points, 
I question once in a while when I see people's fondness for certain plant-based chemicals, which is in control of the other, the plant or the person. And yeah, it gets a little philosophical and out there, but when you consider how sophisticated plants' genomes are, you know, we did the Human Genome Project around the turn of the century, ended late, late, late 99, but generally considered two, year 2000, the first human genome done, ciphered, it became a roadmap for lots and lots of advances in medicine. Three years later, Aridopsis, a, a little tiny inconspicuous plant, became the plant kingdom's first real plant blueprint for its genome. And since that time, plant genetics have been much, much, much better understood than they were before we knew how sophisticated plants actually were. So here, I'll ask you a little question, Matthew. Let's see if you got a guess at this. Human beings we know, you and I have about 35,000 genes that make up our DNA. And that's a fairly impressive number, but unless you started off with the Human Genome Project to come up with an estimate, maybe that number wouldn't be all that meaningful to you. So if you want to look at a plant, the plant that we all know, let's look at rice, you know, the grain, rice. Would you care to guess how many genes does rice have in it? I'm going to guess a little more than double. Let's say 80,000. A good guess because it is more than us. It's actually 50,000 or about 50% more, not quite. But the, the reason I'm bringing it up that way is plants have had a lot of time to develop very unique chemistries because unlike you and I, a plant can't run away from a threat. You and I can hunker down from coronavirus and try to avoid it. Or if there's a storm outside, we go where we can have protection. Plants can't do that. They are existentially rooted. So they've had to develop very sophisticated chemistries with how they relate to their environments. And so the things and the chemicals that we can benefit from, from a plant's wisdom in a sense, are of great interest to me, and it's a great lesson in evolution also. Um, so that, that's one of the things that's getting a little out of, of the subject. Yeah, this is a topic that I would, I feel we'll definitely go for a second round here and uh, diving deep into the botanicals is something I really hope to do with you. And so we'll save a lot of this plant talk for the next conversation. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap up right now. And thank you so much, Dr. Block, for all your time. And, and just to wrap things up a little bit succinctly, don't smoke. Just don't do it. It's not going to be good for you right now. And then also the ways that we can help to protect ourselves is eat healthy food, get some good sleep, relax, forget, which is a really interesting one that nobody really talks about very much. And then then be protect protect ourselves. So is there anything else you'd like to add in conclusion? That last part about protecting ourselves are one of the benefits of having a healthy endocannabinoid system. That happens and it has happened throughout recorded history, certainly and long before the plant ever came here to animals at large. We're, we're really just part of that whole storyline except we understand these variables much better than we did even a matter of just a generation ago. So, so the wisdom of how to stay healthy 
is going back to probably doing the things that your grandmother told you to do, okay? And I'm not sure it's if it's in your culture going to be chicken soup or get extra sleep or drink plenty of fluid, which, by the way, is the other thing that's kind of critical here. Um, fluid management is something that when people get older, you generally lose the perception and the sense of, of thirst. And so it's not just eating and sleeping and protecting and forgetting relaxing. It's what you eat and how you eat. For instance, the body's own cannabinoids, anandamide 2-HE, they are components of fatty acids. So omega-3 fatty acids, the things that, that you're told eat good in the fish you have and the diets that we have, do directly contribute to the building blocks of the body's own chemicals that we're relying on. Again, that cannabis is mimicking, but in the case of what you need yourself to, to stay healthy, a healthy diet includes staying very well hydrated, especially if you're older or if you have loved ones who are older at home, encouraging them to drink more water. I'm not saying things that cause dehydration, if you're home and you think that it's okay to have an extra six pack, if it's beer, alcohol itself is, is, is a diuretic. It causes you to lose more than you're taking in in terms of volume generally. So I'm not so sure it's a good time to drink much alcohol, if any. In comparison, alcohol kills more people because it's a direct toxin to cells than cannabinoids, which is not. Um, so there are many conversations of health and wellness I would defer to grandmothers, if you're still lucky enough to have them around, to tell you what you should do to stay healthy. And then for your grandparents in particular, encouraging and making sure they've got that extra bottle of water by their bedside. So you encourage them to have it overnight so they're not waking up, perhaps sick with something, but also dehydrated, which is sort of a double whammy. That may be just enough to let their own immune and endocannabinoid system pull them through an illness when being dehydrated and not being able to bring up the normal cough things that you may need to clear an airway would be needed for. So that'll probably be the last thing I want to add to it about a good diet and eating going back to what you were told when you were a little boy. Great. Grandma's advice always wins. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Block. I appreciate all your time and all your incredible information and really hammering home this point in a really critical time in our human history right now. And uh, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Not a good time to get sick, so do whatever you can do, especially these next few months, to stay healthy. Great. Thanks a lot, Dr. Black. We'll talk again. Bye now. There it is, friends. This episode with Dr. Block was full of information. I know I learned a ton. Hopefully, you are going to be able to follow some of his tips and Keep that endocannabinoid system healthy and strong. It runs the show inside your body. Wow, what a ton of information. That was amazing. So if you have not had the chance yet, please subscribe to this show so that you get every episode that we drop week after week. And head over to wherever it is that you are listening. Give us that five-star rating because you love what you are learning. It helps us keep getting more and more people involved, more and more people informed. Thank you so much. Until next time, my friends, please stay healthy, stay strong, and we'll get through this thing together.
This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.